Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to be continuing in 1 Corinthians here this morning. We're going to be in this another week. James is going to finish up 1 Corinthians 10 for me next week, and then we're going to head into kind of the Christmas season and take a bit of a break from 1 Corinthians. But we've got a couple more weeks that we're going to focus here in 1 Corinthians 10 on this broken church uh, that Paul is writing to here in Corinth. You will probably be familiar with this quote. I've heard it before somewhere. Those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. The quote is often attributed to Winston Churchill addressing the British Parliament in 1948, though there is some debate as to whether or not he actually said those words at that time. Regardless, it's easy to understand why these words would have been so potent coming from him at that time in history. Having survived the First World War in the early 20th century, Churchill had a front row seat to see European politics deliver a frighteningly similar series of events just 22 years later in the Second World War. For Churchill, I'm sure that must have felt like deja vu as he entered World War II. And I expect that that's the feeling the Apostle Paul would have had or would have sympathized with as he penned the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 writing to this young, broken church and watching them play with fire. Watching them play with the same fire that the Old Testament reveals that generation after generation the Israelites had fallen prey to, the sin of idolatry. And I imagine that Paul's words to the church would have been somewhat similar to Winston Churchill's. Those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. We're going to see Paul's warning against idolatry here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to read verses 1 through 22 together. Read with me. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, the rock, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake in the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons." You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? 
Let's pray. Father, we proclaim you as Lord of all. You are Lord of all. You're the author of history. You are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are the God of Israel. And you are the God who saved us, who sent your son to this earth to die on our behalf. The season that we celebrate here at Christmas is a reminder of the fact that he went to the cross. And so we remember his death and we proclaim his death until he comes again. Lord, as we wade through this text this morning, uh, there's so much here uh, that's both challenging and encouraging to us. We ask that your word would be preached boldly, that you would be working in our hearts and minds to help us to hear it, and Lord, that you would connect it to our lives so that we would live out of faithfulness to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, again, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know that Paul continues to address these disputes in the Corinthian church over their rights and freedoms. In chapter 8, he brought up this subject of the meat sacrificed to idols, and he addressed the stronger brothers who were looking down on their weak brothers because they struggled with meat sacrificed to idols. Then in chapter 9, he segued and he addressed why laying down our rights for our brothers and sisters and for the mission of the church is so critical. Here in chapters, or chapter 10, he kind of flips the script, and rather than addressing the weak brothers, he goes to the strong brothers and says, well, let me give you a warning about idolatry. Let me give you a warning about what you are likely to slip into in your strong position, if you will. As a result, he lays out some history for the, for the, the Corinthian believers, and fair warning, we're going to cover a lot of Old Testament texts in our time together this morning. I'm not going to have time to go to all of them, but I would encourage you to jot them down in your Bibles and do some reading on some of these stories that he's going to reference as we move through them. Because he's going to give the Corinthian church a bit of a history lesson in our time together this morning. And that's what we see. We learn that we also have a history to heed. A history to heed. We have an error to escape. We have a fellowship to flee. And lastly, we're going to see that we have a comfort to claim. Follow along with me. Paul gives the Corinthians this brief history lesson starting in verse 1. I love the way he starts this. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. Notice the comforting language. Notice the familial language. Again, he's used that brother's term again and again in Corinthians. Even though he's chastising this church, he says, I'm in it with you. And I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be unaware of Israel's history. He goes on, he says, what our fathers were all under the cloud. And we go, hold on a second, you're talking about Israel, what do you mean by our fathers? Who are we referring to here? It's interesting that addressing this Gentile church in Corinth, Paul says that our fathers were the people of Israel as they went through the Exodus. He draws this familial tie between the Corinthian church and the forefathers they had that went out in the Exodus. What he's basically saying is, your history is their history. Their example is to be an example to you. There's a history there that you need to be aware of and you need to learn from. And then he lays out four key experiences that the Israelites went through in the Exodus. And we're going to move through these, like I said, fairly quickly, but try and follow along with me here. First, in verse 1, he says, I don't want you to be unaware that our fathers were all under the cloud. All were under the cloud. What's he referencing here? He's referencing Exodus chapter 13. You're probably familiar with the story, or you've seen the Charlton Heston film, where he stands up like this and the robes are waving. And all. I don't know how theologically sound that movie is, but you understand the image. Okay? This is the story, right? The Israelites go down into Egypt with Joseph rescuing them. They become slaves when the pharaohs forget about the good that Joseph had done for the Egyptians. 
right? God raises up Moses and says, Moses, go rescue my people out of Egypt. So God comes with Moses to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, I have no intention of letting your people go. We get the 10 plagues of Egypt. Finally, the Egyptians relent. They say, go. So the Israelites take all of their loot with them and they head out and the Egyptians change their mind. And so they chase them. And we learn in Exodus chapter 13 that the Israelites were led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God's presence protecting them as they headed out in this Exodus journey. He goes on and he says there's something else that the Israelites all experienced. They all passed through the sea. Look at verse 1. And all passed through the sea. Again, a familiar image. We've seen the movie. The Israelites come up against the Red Sea, and the Egyptians have changed their minds, so the army is chasing after them, and they're going, Moses, what are we going to do? Did you lead us all out here to die? And God parts the waters of the Red Sea, and the Israelites walk through on dry land. And then when the Egyptians try to chase after them, the waters come crashing back down, and the Egyptian army is decimated. Paul hearkens back to these two experiences of the Israelites. He says, all the Israelites were saved out of Egypt under this cloud of God. All of the Israelites passed through this See, and then he interprets it in verse 2, and we should probably raise an eyebrow to this. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And we go, huh? What does that mean? What does it mean to be baptized into Moses in this cloud and in this sea? See, I think Paul is drawing an analogy to the experience of the Corinthian church through baptism as their induction or introduction into the people of God. That was their initiation. That was their induction into the people of God in the same way that for the Jews, as they were led out of Egypt, their initiation as a people was under the cloud and through the sea. God was their protection and their salvation through the work of Moses as the leader, as the mediator, if you will. And so he speaks to all these Israelites experienced the protection, the salvation of God as he brought them out of the land of Egypt. But he goes on and he says there was something else that they also experienced. All ate the same spiritual food. Look at verse 3. And all ate the same spiritual food. Now what is this talking about? Again, time for a history lesson. Exodus chapter 16, write down in your Bibles. After they have been exodist, that's not a word. After they have gone out of the land of Egypt, God begins providing because they're like, Moses, we don't have any food, we don't have any water, we don't have anything to eat, we don't have anything to drink, we want to go back to Egypt. And so God provides manna, right? This bread from heaven that comes out every morning. They pick it up and they eat it, and it sustains them through this journey. Exodus 16 also talks about God raising up quail and bringing them for the people so they could capture them and so they could eat meat. And so it says, all ate the same spiritual food. We'll talk about the spiritual thing here in just a moment. Verse 4, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Same spiritual drink. It's unclear whether Paul has in mind Exodus 17, where Moses spoke to the rock and the water came out, or whether he has in mind Numbers 20, where Moses struck the rock and the water came out. But either way, God sustains the people of Israel in their journey around the desert by giving them water that they need for millions of people in a dry and barren land. And then he gives this explanation in verse 4. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. They drank from the spiritual rock, and the rock was Christ? Now, does he mean that Christ, pre-incarnate, was literally that rock that was spoken to and was struck? 
I don't think that's the point that Paul is trying to make here. But I think what he is trying to do is speak to a spiritual reality that was at play for the Israelites in the same way that it's at play for the Corinthians. Christ was the Israelites' provision. Christ was the provision for the people of God in their wandering in the deserts. And so Christ, later on in the Gospel of John, I don't think is introducing new illustrations that the Old Testament is foreign to when he says in John chapter 4, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. That metaphor, that illustration of God, Christ, as the provision for the people of God wasn't new. Or in John chapter 16, where Christ would say, I am the bread of life. Jesus isn't just pulling up on some random thing. He's looking back at Israel's history and he's saying, just in the same way that I provided for the people of Israel in the Old Testament, I am your provision here in the New Testament. Christ was, to the Israelites, their provision and their sustenance through the desert in the Old Testament. Nevertheless, look at verse 5. This is an important shift in Paul's argument. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. He pulls the carpet out from underneath the Corinthians here, and he says, they experienced all of this incredible provision and protection from the Lord, and yet... God was displeased with their rebellion. With most of them, God was not pleased. Why was God not pleased with most of them? We're going to look more in detail about this here in a second, but at the very least, we're talking about Numbers chapter 13 and 14. The story of Numbers chapter 13 and 14 is after the people have come out of the land, after they've met with God at Mount Sinai, they go up to Kadesh Barnea and they get ready to enter the promised land. You remember the story from Sunday school, right? And Moses sends out the 12 spies. The 12 spies go into the land, and they see the land. They say, this is the land God has for us, but it's filled with giants. It's amazing, but we're going to be wiped out if we go into that land. We want to go back home. All except for Joshua and Caleb, who say, no, God has given us this land. We're going to take it. But the people don't follow the two. The people follow the ten. And the people rebel against God. And I think that rebellion is what God has in mind here, what Paul has in mind here. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For what happens as a result, they're sent back into the desert to wander around for 40 years until a whole generation of the Israelites had passed away. They were overthrown. Literally, they were laid low in the wilderness. And the rest of the book of Numbers, in case you're wondering thematically how to interpret the book of Numbers in your Bible, the rest of the book of Numbers is the people wandering around in the desert, dying off until 40 years have gone by, and a new generation is ready to go into the land. That's the story of the book of Numbers. Kind of disappointing. They're all ready to go into the land. They rebel. They wander around for 40 years, and most of them die. And then they number themselves again to get ready to go back into the land because of their rebellion. Here's Paul's point. After saving Israel, God still judged their rebellion. The Corinthian church needed to hear this message. God had pulled this people out of Egypt. He had rescued them through miraculous signs and through parting the Red Sea and through providing manna and quail and water and everything they needed, and yet their rebellion still caused God to judge them. Though Israel experienced the protection and provision of God, their rebellion resulted in his judgment. Their pride and their arrogance resulted in God having to judge them. And Paul looks at this Corinthian church and he says, your pride and your arrogance is something you need to watch. God judged the people of Israel after rescuing them out of the land of Egypt because of exactly the same thing that you're struggling with. 
And this may have come as a surprise to them because they thought they were really mature. They thought that it was smooth sailing. They thought everything was good in their church. And Paul said, there's this major flaw present in your church. It's kind of like black ice, right? We're coming up on that season that black ice becomes like a four-letter word in Nebraska, right? That ice that you can't see on the road until you're all of a sudden on top of it and then you're in the ditch, right? We all know that experience, right? If you don't, you'll get that experience at some point. For those of you that aren't from Nebraska, you know. You're on firm footing. You think things are going great. You think you're safe and the road is clear. And then all of a sudden you realize you're not nearly as safe as you thought you were. Paul says, we must heed this warning too. The Israelites thought it was smooth sailing. They thought everything was going fine because God had rescued them out. They were special to God, right? And that's true, they were. But God says, I will also discipline the some whom I love. So we need to heed this warning too. The wrath of God, the judgment of God, is not something that we should avoid talking about. If you're sitting here this morning and you haven't placed your faith in Christ for your redemption and for your salvation, I just want to warn you that the sort of judgment that we're talking about here, the sort of judgment on sin that we're going to talk about in our next point is precisely what currently is set to fall on you. That the wages of sin is death. That there is only one penalty for rebellion against God, and that is God's righteous judgment on your sin. And if you haven't placed your faith in Christ, if you haven't said, I am trusting in his righteousness on my behalf, I think I can do it in my own power, let me warn you that what Paul is talking about in this verse, that judgment is set to fall on you. There's only two places that judgment can fall. It can either fall on you or it can fall on Christ. So the only way to avoid God's righteous judgment on you is to place your faith and hope in Christ and say, he paid the penalty so that I don't have to. Maybe you're here this morning because it's the Christmas season and it seems like the thing to do. Maybe you're here this morning because your parents dragged you to church. Regardless of the reason you find yourself here today, if you have not placed your faith in Christ, I would encourage you to do so today. Do not leave today without knowing where your hope rests. Do not leave today still under the judgment of God that righteously falls on you. For those of us that are already believers, we need to remember that we cannot sin against God casually. We do not rebel against God. We do not engage in idolatry casually as if it doesn't matter to God, as if he doesn't care what we do. True, Christ has paid for our, penalty, or our sins, past, present, and future, but to sin recklessly, ignorant of that reality, is an affront to a holy God. Children, youth, let me warn you that what we see in this passage is that Christian heritage and the privileges of a Christian home do not guarantee salvation or success in your spiritual life. The fact that you are growing up in a Christian home, the fact that you have heard the gospel since you were a child, does not guarantee your salvation. You cannot get to heaven on your parents' righteousness. You cannot get to heaven by saying, I just believe what they believe. The Israelites all went out through the sea. They all were under the cloud. They all experienced the miracles of God, and yet so many of them had no personal faith. There are no such things as second-generation Christians. We must heed Israel's history 
in this regard. But this error of Israel is exactly where Paul goes next. He gives them more detail on what he's talking about. What were the specific sins that the Israelites struggled with so much that are the temptation for the Corinthian church as well? Look at verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. He said the purpose of the Israelites doing these things was to serve as an example so that we don't desire the same evil they desired. And he gives four specific prohibitions, four specific examples from Israel's history of what Israel did. First, he says, do not be idolaters. Look at verse 7. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. History lesson again. This is the example of the golden calf at Mount Sinai, right in your Bibles, Exodus chapter 32. The Israelites have been saved out of Egypt. They've gone through the Red Sea, and they come up to Mount Sinai where they're to receive the law of God, where they're to covenant with God, blessings and curses for obedience and disobedience. And Moses goes up onto the mountain to receive the word of the Lord, and fire and a cloud descend on top of the mountain, and people are like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, I'm not going up there. Moses, you go up there. You receive the word of the Lord. We're going to stay down here where it's safe. But Moses stays up there a little bit too long, and the people get impatient. And so they say, let's just make a God for ourselves. So they go and Aaron, the priest, and they say, Aaron, we want you to make a God. And Aaron says, no, I'm not going to do it. No. Aaron, the high priest of Israel, says, yeah, sure. Let me make you a golden calf. He gets their jewelry and he makes a golden calf, and the people wander around worshiping this golden calf while Moses is literally on the mountain meeting with God. Moses comes down from the mountain with the tablets of the commands of God. Joshua hears the partying going on in the camp. He says, it must be war. And Moses is like, no, it's not war. The people are partying. People are worshiping a foreign god. He raises this example as an example of idolatry. He says the people were worshiping a golden calf while the true God was meeting with Moses on the mountain. This should be an example to you. What happened as a result of this? Moses ground up the golden calf and made the people drink it with their water. And then God sent a plague on the people of Israel and thousands died. He says, do not be idolaters just like the people. In addition to that, he says, do not indulge in sexual immorality. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and three or 23,000 fell in a single day. This is the example of the Midianites and the Moabites in Numbers chapter 25. The people were traveling through the land and they started marrying unbelieving wives. They started marrying whoever they wanted to and their hearts were being drawn away from the Lord. And God said, this isn't right. And he sends another plague on the people of Israel to remind them that their allegiance is to God alone. They were engaging in this sort of sexual immorality. We already talked about that in 1 Corinthians at length. He says, don't indulge in sexual immorality. Verse 9, do not test Christ. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. This is the example of their complaining in Numbers chapter 21. The people were complaining about the food not being very good and the water not being very good and the leadership not being very good. And they didn't really like how things were going, so they start complaining. And it's interesting that Paul here notes, we must not put Christ to the test, saying they were testing Christ by complaining about their circumstances, by complaining about the food they have. And as a result, God sends a judgment of fiery serpents on the people. And again, thousands die. Lastly, and we may find this a little bit strange, in amongst do not be idolaters, do not commit sexual immorality, do not test Christ, we get what we think is a small sin. 
do not grumble, right? It's not a big deal. He says, do not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. That's one of our acceptable sins in our culture, right? I mean, sure, sexual immorality is a big deal. Sure, idolatry is a big deal. But a little bit of complaining and grumbling, not such a big deal. A little bit of grumbling and complaining was exactly what happened in Numbers chapter 16. And we get Korah's rebellion. Korah and some of the other leaders went to Moses and Aaron. They said, it's not really fair for you to be the only one speaking on God's behalf. We think God should speak through all of us too. Moses says, okay, let's find out whether God is with us or whether God is with you. And they separate themselves off in the camp, and the earth opens up literally and swallows these false leaders. You'd think that would have been an eye-opening experience for the Israelites. It becomes very clear that God takes exception with grumbling. He takes exception with grumbling because it betrays a lack of confidence in him and his sovereignty. He says, do not be idolaters, do not engage in sexual immorality, do not test Christ, and do not grumble. These are straightforward commands. We'll talk about them a little bit more in a moment. Because he goes on and he says, not only is there this negative example to avoid, look at verse 11, these things were for our instruction. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Right, so, so why did these things occur? Why were they recorded? For those on whom the end of the age has come. Israel is to serve as an example. These things occurred in Israel to be an example and to be instruction for us. We're supposed to learn from the stories, which first of all means we have to know the stories. If you find yourself going, I don't really know the stories you're talking about, I encourage you, go and read about them. Israel is to serve as our example. For those that are after the first coming of Christ, to those on whom the end of the age has come, It's a general term for this time period between when Christ came his first advent and when he will return again his second advent. Some of you may be wondering, well, how close to the end of the end of the age are we? I have no idea. We'll find out. But we're to live as though we're at the end. That's the point. This instruction is for us. It's supposed to be a positive instruction. God's judgment on Israel should serve as a warning and instruction for us against ignoring God's commands. They're not just fun Sunday school lessons that are interesting to learn about. They're to be examples and instruction for us today on how we should live and the sins that we struggle with as well. And then he summarizes it, and this verse just cut me to the quick. Verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. I don't know what the sins are that you struggle with, But Paul's point here is that we are all capable of all of these sins and a whole bunch of others that he didn't list. Pride leads to falling. Remember, pride was the primary issue in the Corinthian church. That was the primary problem. That was what was causing them to be broken and splintered was their own arrogance. And Paul says, if you are proud, be careful. The key to defending sin is recognizing our weakness and staying humble. The minute you think you are beyond any sin that Scripture lays out is the moment you need to be careful. Because at that moment is when it gets a stronghold in your life. Israel's example of idolatry, immorality, rebellion, and grumbling should inspire us to humble, faithful living. 
We should seek to avoid the errors and the mistakes that they've already made. It's kind of like being a younger sibling. Okay? How many of you are the oldest in your family? Quick show of hands. Okay, you all just ignore me for a moment, okay? Just cover your ears and pretend like I'm not talking. I'm the second of four, okay? Which means I have an older brother, which means I had the opportunity to watch my older brother's successes and failures as I was going through school. For those of you that know him, he's a great guy. Don't, don't misunderstand me at all in this respect. But I had the wonderful opportunity to watch my older brother, to see him get in trouble and say, I'm not going to do that. Mm-mm. I'm not going to do that. I don't want that sort of a thing. Or that was a good idea. I think I'm going to follow that. For all of us that are younger siblings, we understand what this is. Whether or not we take up on the opportunity is entirely up to us. But he's saying, you as believers, you as the Corinthian church, it's just like that. You've got this whole Old Testament history of Israel and all the amazing ways that they found to fail. Are you looking to them as an example? Are you saying, no, 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 I'm not going to do that? That didn't end very well for them. Or are you like, nope, I got this on my own. I'm good. I don't need their example. Paul says, be careful. Take heed lest you fall. Right? For us as believers, as New Testament saints in particular, I think what this primarily means is replacing affections. Sometimes we get very, very infatuated with like, this is the sin that I'm supposed to avoid, and we focus on that sin, and we try to avoid it, we try to avoid it, and we try to avoid it, and we know exactly how this works. When you focus on one thing, it's all you can think about. Instead, I think our approach should be to shift our affections. We are all worshipers. We will worship something. The question is, what will be the object of our worship? So he says, don't be idolaters. The counter argument to that is cultivate a worship of Christ. Don't be like, well, I'm not going to engage in idolatry. I'm not going to engage in idolatry. And you just focus on it. Instead, turn your eyes to where it belongs. Turn your eyes to the person and work of Christ. Spend time focusing and worshiping Christ. Replace that affection with something better. Or you're struggling with sexual immorality. That sexual immorality is a manifestation of a deeper desire for intimacy that you have. An intimacy that only can truly be known with Christ, the only person who knows you inside and out. Focus on cultivating an intimacy with Christ rather than just cutting off something you don't understand. Or testing Christ. Cultivate a fulfillment in Christ. Saying, I'm going to find my fulfillment in the person and work of Christ rather than looking for it in everything else in this world. Or grumbling Cultivate a trust of Christ. Seek to cultivate an attitude and a mindset where you actively choose to trust Christ rather than grumbling about everything he hasn't given you. In that respect, the answer, the antidote here is in many ways the same things that Christians are always on about. Spending time in the word, spending time in prayer, spending time being amazed by who Christ is. If you're struggling with any one of these sins or any other sin, the antidote is to focus more on Christ, not less. We must escape repeating Israel's failure. Now, I'm going to come back to verse 13, so stick your finger in there. We're going to come back to verse 16 or 13 in a moment. But at this point, I want to move on to verse 14. Because this is where we kind of get into the meat of what Paul is talking about, this issue of idolatry and meat sacrifice to idols. And we see that we have a fellowship to flee. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved... Flee from idolatry. Therefore, in light of everything that I'm saying, here's his main point. Flee from idolatry. Run away from idolatry. That's the point. Don't think you're too mature to struggle with this issue. Run away from idolatry. 
I love his statement here in verse 15. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. It's not the only time he's going to say that in 1 Corinthians. Like, use your judgment. Use your judgment about what I'm talking about. Does it not make sense? And then here he's going to talk about three different contexts, okay? And we'll work through these pretty quickly. But he's, using a, he's going to use a term participation and participate consistently. And it's interesting to note that that word is literally koinonia. It's the same term that we get the New Testament concept of fellowship from. It's an involvement or a participation with, okay? So look through this. He first starts out by talking about the community of the church. Look at verse 15 or 16 and 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake in the one bread. He poses these questions to the Corinthians. He said, is the cup not a participation in Christ's blood? And they would have said, of course it is. Yes, it is. Is the bread not a participation in Christ's body? And they would have said, yes, of course it is. Now, is Paul's point here to say that it is a literal eating of Christ's body and drinking of Christ's blood? I don't think that's his point. Now, the only time he hasn't been using symbolic language here is what he's saying is when we enter into the Lord's Supper, there is a spiritual reality of a fellowship with Christ. There's an enjoyment and a fellowship with Christ in that moment. It's a figurative, a symbolic language. It's not meant to be taken literally. It's very clear what he's talking about, any more than the rock was literally Christ. So he says, but there is a real participation. There is a real enjoyment, a fellowship with Christ here. He goes on to talk about the sacrifices of Israel. Look at verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Same sort of thing, similar to communion. He says, for the Israelites, when they offered up a sacrifice, the eaters, if you will, were participants in the altar. It was an act of worship before God. It was an participation with the Lord in that. They literally ate the bread at that, or the, the meat at that point. But he has the illustration is the same for Israel. So then what's the relevance for the Corinthians? Look at verse 19 and 20. He talks about the Corinthian church. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Well, of course, the answer to that is no. Remember chapter 8, verse 4, where he said it's not about the food. So then what is it? I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. He says there is a real danger in what you're choosing to engage in. Pagans, though they don't realize it, are actually offering these things to demons. Demons, demonic forces, are behind this idolatry that's going on in the church at Corinth. He says, I do not want you to be participants with demons. Just as the Israelites worshipped God through their sacrificial system, and we worship and celebrate Christ in communion, the pagan celebrations worship demonic forces. And he's saying, you're going and you're engaging in these celebrations where demonic forces are worshipped. There's an extreme danger of idolatry here for you. You think you're so strong, you don't think you have any issues. Let me tell you what the heart of the matter is. He gives this practical instruction about idolatry. He says there's two key realities you need to take into account. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Saying you cannot have a foot in both camps. You want to live in the world and you want to live in the Christian community. You cannot mix worship of God and worship of God's enemies. You cannot engage in these two things simultaneously. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? 
think Paul's point here is that fleeing idolatry means celebrating our fellowship with Christ, but avoiding participation in any rebellion against God. Because you're probably sitting there going, Brad, what could this possibly have to do with me? I didn't go out and worship demons this weekend. At least I hope that was the case. Okay? In fact, we just minimize the whole thing. We just avoid any conversation about spiritual realities because we're modern 21st century Americans. Demons and angels, none of that's real. So that's exactly the case. That is real. Those that are in charge of the world are the forces of, of the devil. He's in charge of the world. He's in charge of the world systems. I think 1 John chapter 2 is extremely helpful in this respect. Flip to the right in your Bibles and look at 1 John chapter 2. I love the way John puts this. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, John writes this. Do not love the things of the world, or love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. There's two competing worship systems. There's the worship of the true God, and there's the worship of what the world values. There's allegiance to the true God, and there's allegiance to the enemies of God. Any allegiance with the world is a rebellion against God. It's a worship of the wrong thing. All of those things that we think are little idolatries in our heart that don't really matter, that aren't really a big deal, are a worship of the systems of the world and those things that are in rebellion against God. He said you can't have a, a foot in both camps. You have to pick who you're going to be allied with. Now, I want to circle back here real briefly. I'm going to go back, flip back to the left in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, and I want to talk about verse 13. Because I think there's a comfort here that we have to remember in verse 13 as a church. Paul writes, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Then there are these temptations out there, they're normal. The Corinthian churches experience them. The people of Israel experience them. But there's two key truths you have to keep in mind as you face temptation. The first, the beginning of the verse, is that tempti being tempted is normal. Did you notice what he said? No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. He said, this is normal. Temptation is normal part of the Christian life. And he says, you have been overtaken by it. As a Christian, you will fall to temptation. It will be a part of your experience. It doesn't mean you shouldn't resist it, but it is normal. But know that you are not alone in that. It says there's no temptation that isn't common to man. There is no temptation, there is no sin that you struggle with here in this church that somebody else sitting here today doesn't also struggle with. You are not alone in that. You are not unique in that. Sin makes us want to hide it and pretend like we're the only one that struggles in that area. But the truth of the matter is, no temptation is in your life that isn't common to man. It's normal. It's typical. But, look at verse 13, God is faithful. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So being tempted is normal but God is faithful, right? God promises two things here. He promises first to limit our temptation. 
You cannot experience a temptation in your life that God hasn't limited to make you able to overcome it. Now, not in your own strength. That's not what Paul's advocating. Remember, pride is the issue here. But every temptation that God puts in your life, God has limited to make you able to overcome it through his strength. We have to keep that in mind because we have a tendency to embrace kind of like a dead-end mindset that failure is inevitable, that we're going to at some point fail or succumb to temptation. And God says, I will limit your temptation and I will provide a way of escape. There is a way out. God has promised to limit the intensity of our temptations and faithfully provide an escape from them. And if you're struggling with any of these things that Paul just listed off here, that is a critical thing to keep in mind. That is a critical reality to remember. If you're struggling as an individual believer with how do I stay out of falling to temptation, embrace or embrace God's provided community. Know that you are not alone in that struggle. There is somebody else in this church that is wrestling with that. You need their help. Embrace the community that God has given us. As you're in the temptation, remind yourself that God has already provided a way out. That God has given you escape from that temptation. You don't have to fall. You don't have to fail if you have the work or if you have the personal work of Christ. If you have the Holy Spirit's power. And once you do fail, which every single one of us will, trust in God's provided Savior. Every single one of us is going to fall to one of these temptations at different times in our life. The only solution to that problem is to run back to the cross and to remember that Christ paid for your sins, past, present, and future, before they ever occurred. We must hold on to the comfort of these realities, to the fact that God is faithful even as we fight and wrestle with temptation in our lives. You may be struggling with any number of these sins or you may be struggling with something that we didn't talk about here in 1 Corinthians 10, but God is faithful in that. He is with you in that. And we have to remember that as we face temptation. So I have two key points for this week's message. Two key things that if you missed everything else I said, you should take away from this. The first, we must remember the rebellion of Israel, learn from their example, and flee from idolatry. This is our example too. All of us are prone to arrogance and pride just like the Israelites were. So we look to their example, we say, I am struggling with that same issue, and we flee from idolatry. That's Paul's whole point here. You think you're so strong, you think you can walk into these environments and not be worried, you have the same issue that they do. Secondly, we must also embrace Christ's comfort through temptations, failures, and successes. Christ is sufficient for it all. Christ is enough for it all. If you're facing temptation, if you're struggling with a sin, if you've been successful or if you've been a failure in that situation, Christ is enough. Run to Christ in that situation. Because Paul's whole point here is that those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Will we look to Israel as an example? Will we listen to the words of 1 Corinthians 12? Or will we just continue to repeat history at nauseum? Let's pray. Father, there's so much here in this text. There's so much that's hard and challenging. There's so much that is convicting. But I do pray that we as a church would be encouraged as well. That you would remind us of the fact that you are faithful as we face trials and temptations that you are good and that you have paid the penalty for all of our sins in the person and work of Christ. I pray that we would run again and again to the cross, that we would be reminded of your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.